the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast. The Star Kingdom at the Wormhole Nexus erupts with the interplanetary silence of battle. Mass markets paint the hills with color, a lot of it red. Red, R-E-A-D, get it? Their leaves are ripe and ready. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Cokie Daniel, daughter of Bain editor Tony Daniel. Thank you, Cokie. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of a two-part discussion with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope, co-authors of A Call to Arms. That's book two in the Manticore Ascendant series that takes place in the early days of the Royal Manticore Navy in David Weber's Honorverse. This book is a sequel to last year's A Call to Duty, by the way. In A Call to Arms, Travis Long is older and a junior tactical officer now on a starship in the Royal Manticore Navy. When all hell breaks loose, in the Manticore and Solar System and beyond. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now, the news. Whoa, <laughs> the October mass market paperbacks and a young adult trade paperback are rising from the Bain Pumpkin Patch to bring delight and joy to all the readers of the world. It's Up to Charlie Harden by Dean Ng is out in Young Adult Trade Paperback, which is the $9.99 size book in the kids or uh, the teens section. This is a great read for anyone. I really enjoyed Dean Ng's take on his adventurous childhood in Austin, Texas at the end of World War II. Of course, he added a counterfeit ring and a dam breaking to make sure the story rocks, which it does, or maybe those things actually happened. This is a great... Uh, book to give to a kid who's a reader and who's tired of all the torture rate broken families and non-stop cussing in his usual YA fare. Hey look, you can tell a great story about a young man that isn't a non-stop parade of horribles. Also at his collision, book four of The Secret World Chronicle by Mercedes Lackey, Veronica Jaguer, Cody Martin, and Dennis Lee. The meta-heroes are back and are dealing once again with the Thulians and billionaire financiers trying to take over the world with mutants and stuff like that. This is a really fun series. Also out this month is Rescue Mode by Ben Bova and Les Johnson. You want a Mars book? We got your Mars book right here. Les is a space scientist who works for NASA on solar sails and interplanetary and even interstellar propulsion ideas. Ben Bova is the legendary, multiple-award-winning SF writer and editor, and several times president of the National Space Society. This is about a Mars mission that runs into a bit of a hiccup on the way and has to enter rescue mode in order to solve it. It's really a fun book, and it's got a beautiful Bob Eggleton uh, cover with a guy standing on Mars in it. It's up to Charlie Harden. Collision and Rescue Mode are now out at booksellers everywhere. This is part two of our two-part interview with David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope, discussing their new entry in the Manticore Ascendant series, A Call to Arms, which takes place during the early days of the Royal Manticoran Navy in David Weber's Honorverse, and features main character, Travis Long. 
want to welcome David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope back to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi, Tony. David Weber is the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse within which that series is set. David's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies over the years. David is also the author of many other Bane books, including the epic fantasy Basel series, uh, one of the one of the names for it. The latest entry is book one in the new Ken Hoden subseries of that, Sword of the South. David has 17 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 7.5 million David Weber books in print. Timothy Zahn is the creator of the Cobra and the Black Collar series for Bane Books. He is also the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Heir to Empire, and more than 40 science fiction novels. His novel Cascade Point won the Hugo Award. Tom Pope is the founder of Bu9, a collection of professionals assisting David Weber in defining and documenting the Honorverse. In his first professional job for Bain, he served as lead editor for House of Steel, the Honorverse Companion. Before founding Bu9, he served as the co-designer of Ad Astra Games' Saganami Island Tactical Simulator and as the co-author of both issues of Jane's Intelligence Review. We're here now to discuss the latest addition to the Honorverse, A Call to Arms by David Weber and Timothy Zahn with Thomas Pope. This is book two in the Manticore Ascendant series, now out in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. To get back to the book, what about his his run-ins with, um, say, that junior officer who's the uh, the nephew of the admiral, whose name I can't recall at the moment? Wakatoli. Um, that's, that's sort of a, a paradigm Travis Long moment, right? He's He's not going to look aside at something. He judges people according to that. Um, and sometimes he misjudges them. For instance, uh, this this fellow, this ensign, um, who um, is maybe not he he may be incompetent in Travis's way of looking at things, but he's he's got his redeeming qualities. Well, that's one of okay. One of the things that really makes that whole sequence work isn't that it turns out that Locatelli wasn't feather bedding or that he wasn't doing things that he shouldn't be doing. It's that when the crunch time comes, Locatelli uh, reaches inside himself and finds what could have been there all along, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and that it was not there when Travis was jumping him. Okay. Um, and you could actually argue, the way that I visualize the character, is that if there had been more Travises in his life early on, he might have shown that promise before he was up against a life-and-death situation that he wasn't going to survive, no matter how right he got it, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. Well, we have um, another uh subplot that runs through the book, uh, which is the extremely annoying but politically effective uh, Lord Breakwater on on Manticore and his uh, crony, who's Baron Winterfell, and this is Travis's half-brother. Uh, these guys have a totally different vision for the armed forces of Manticore, right? And on Breakwater does. Yeah, Breakwater does, and, and on one level, we were careful to to make it clear that he's not completely wrong. 
That, that yeah. again, makes an interesting villain. He's against what the Navy wants to do, but his logic is not uh, – you, you can't just dismiss it. There's a certain re, uh, 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 legitimacy to his reasoning, and we see some of that uh, later in the book. There's, there's actually, there's quite a lot of legitimacy to his arguments. Now, that doesn't make him a nice person, um, and it doesn't mean that he's not an empire builder par excellence. But as Tom pointed out earlier, this is a peacetime navy, and if there were no wormhole junction out there, there would be no need to be building it up to the level that it's going to have to be built up to. And Breakwater doesn't know that the wormhole is there any more than anyone else. And I think that Tim and Tom have done a pretty good job of making it clear that he doesn't know that this is coming. Nobody knows. We do because we've read the later books. And it's really, I think, um, a little bit of uh, of a neat trick that they've managed to avoid that foreshadowing in a lot of respects in the attitudes of the characters. Um, that's sometimes hard to do in a prequel, to to take something that everybody knows about if they've read the later books and have the characters genuinely not know about it at an earlier point in time. And Breakwater doesn't know, and Tim and Tom, I think, have done a really good job of making that evident. I do agree with Tim, by the way, that the fact that he that there's a lot of um, of validity to his arguments and his viewpoint does make him uh, a much more interesting villain. It also makes him a more dangerous villain from uh, from the viewpoint of Travis because he is, however unscrupulous he may be. You can understand why a large block of, of of politicians would agree with him on what it is he's trying to do. He's not uh, he's not a a, a lunatic uh, out conniving for power in a back room somewhere. But he's um, <clears throat> the the things that that are bothersome are you know he uses everything for as a wedge for his his political. Uh... It, like you shoot a missile, and he's going to defund your missile program. <laughs> yeah, he's also he, chancellor of the exchequer, so by nature he he is uh, somewhat inclined towards pinching pennies, and he already thinks the navy is way is too much of a waste of manpower and resources. So of course he's going to fight back. He, he's basically fighting every hill uh, in his, yeah. his quest. Well, he's also in the position of not just pinching pennies, but trying to use them like tiddlywinks to pop as many of them over into the projects that he controls. <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's the that's great metaphor, David. Yeah. Well, he essentially wants to defund the navy and and build up the coast guard equivalent, right? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Because the coast guard is going to be under treasury the way that he sees it. That means it's his. And that makes it okay. And also, you have to say that what he wants Impar's, uh, the, the, the Coast Guard, to do needs doing. It really does. Uh, prior to the, to the wormhole, Manticore really doesn't need to project power on an interstellar basis, and they don't have a merchant marine to defend. 
And he's basically saying, guys, look, we got uh, orbital infrastructure, we got resource extraction platforms, we got this, we got that, we got the other, and we need somebody that has the the the, the revenue cutters, the, the Coast Guard cutters that we need, not Los Angeles class attack submarines and Nimitz class aircraft carriers. And that's one of those points at which it's really, really hard to argue with what he wants to accomplish, given what everybody doesn't know about what's just over the event horizon. So it becomes looking to, to, from the inside like a turf war in many ways, but we, the readers, know what's coming and know we're going to need both of these forces. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's one of the things, okay, I'm a historian by training, okay? And that's one of the things that, one of the reasons the universe works the way that it does. It's the historian and me putting it together. But it's also, it makes a moment like this with characters like Breakwater and, and, uh, and, uh, Travis and Locatelli and Edward, you know, all these people. They're working their way through an actual historical process. And just like people working their way through historical processes in real life, they don't have crystal balls. And to me, that's one of the great appeals of watching this story work out, is seeing people who are on different sides of issues, but are there for reasons that are perfectly logical given what they know and what they understand. And also, like history, there are people who know stuff that our characters don't. Lynn knows yes. about the junction. Other people are knowing about it and are, are conniving. Our main characters have no idea it's there. And again, that's very yes. historical. There, there are gaps in people's knowledge. And, uh, well, Breakwater's uh, crony is is Winterfell, Travis's half-brother. And <clears throat> this guy is... It, he serves a great purpose in the plot because he's the mechanism that prevents Travis from getting recognition, right? To some extent, yes. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, it's You have to be careful with how you categorize him in your mind, I think. Um, you called him uh, Breakwater's crony, and to a great extent that's true. But he surprised Breakwater a couple of times with making suggestions, some of which have fallen in well with Breakwater's plans and some of which haven't, that indicate a certain degree of independence of thought that Breakwater does not find ideal in a tool, mm. put it that way. And it's also fair to say that he does not fully understand what Travis's childhood was like because he was already out and gone by the time Travis, who is who he does not share a father with, came along, and there's that you remember we were talking about you know people don't know everything. A lot of what he's doing right now is proceeding at least in part from his own ignorance, not just of the existence of the wormhole or anything else, but his 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 basic lack of knowledge about in many ways, who Travis really is and why he's doing what he's doing. And one of the interesting things to me about the book is 
watching him acquire some of that knowledge, some of that understanding, and seeing whether once he has it, does how does he respond to it? Does he continue to be the politician who is gaming the system? Does he decide he needs to change? Does he maybe actually decide, hmm, maybe we need to give the Navy a little support here, or what? Um, so I think I think he's going to be one of the more interesting characters to watch in a lot of ways. And, and two other points uh, just to defend him. First of all, he's not with Breakwater as a, an associate because of the, the, the goodies involved. He actually does believe uh, Breakwater's view of what is needed for the Star Kingdom. And secondly, he is not deliberately sabotaging anything of uh, Travis's recognition. It's simply a matter of some no. people high up think, well, if Travis is honored, then some of that glory will go on to his half-brother and thence on to Breakwater, and we can't have that, so we just kind of suppress uh, any any recognition for Travis. So it's not yes. his fault deliberately. Yeah, the, the Navy doesn't want to give somebody who's breaking its kneecaps a bigger hammer. Yeah. And it would be kind of like, well, you know, my my brother, the distinguished war uh, hero and so forth, therefore anything I say you can understand is coming from the perspective of someone who who understands the importance of the Navy, blah, 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 blah. Travis... Don't want that to happen. Travis, because he's not much of a people person, at, at least at first, he really doesn't understand this dynamic yet, does he? And, and it may not be entirely uh, fair to either Travis or his brother because it may not be that Travis's glory will eventually give Breakwater a bigger hammer, but that's the perception. Mm -hmm. So to be on the safe side, the higher-ups are just kind of uh, keeping Travis Travis's name down a little. And Travis does not understand that part of the dynamic, at least early on. Uh, you're right about that, Tony. He, he really he understands that that recognition that he was promised was denied him, and he's inclined to think of it as, well, I ticked off a superior officer, and he used his his power to to get back at me. And that's not necessarily what's happening. That's not to say that it doesn't happen, uh, but in this instance. Because he's unaware of the fact that they're trying to defang Breakwater uh, by by not giving him that extra hammer, he doesn't really understand that, and it is makes it much more disappointing to him. Um, because it's it's a it's a betrayal by the service. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Um, but I think that. I will not call Travis a fast study where people rules are concerned, <laughs> um, but I think that he is beginning to get a clue, um, and I think that eventually, I think that eventually he will emerge from the school of hard knocks with a much better uh, and balanced understanding of how human beings work than he has right now. You can already see signs of that in, in the books. Um, and I think that's important. I think it's important for characters to grow and change uh, over the course of especially multiple books. Um, and Tra 
Travis has so much room to grow in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> well, and speaking of growth, there's a, there is that wonderful moment with Winterfell when he when he stops and says, "You know, this might affect my brother <laughs> as well as my own." Yeah. Yeah, he's got some growing to do as well. As David said, he really doesn't understand his brother at all and has never really made an effort to do so. And he's slowly in this book starting to realize what actually happened in his brother's life. Well, and he's also, I think, slowly beginning to, uh, how should I put this? He's slowly beginning to understand, almost as a third party, Travis's value as a human being. Um, because he didn't take the time to really know him, he's learning about Travis from somebody on the outside watching what Travis accomplishes and the recognition that he doesn't get for it. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. One of the um, one of the other characters in in the interactions in the book, just uh, on a, uh, a character growth level. Um, is his reaction his is Travis's relationship with Chomps. He he really kind of loses a friend there, doesn't he? At least for the moment. Uh yes he does, because again, yep. sticking to the rules. There yeah, there may that, be some new things to learn about that whole thing though later on. You know, maybe in uh, oh what the third book, maybe? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, could happen. Could happen. Well I will I will say this. That's that episode in Travis, excuse me, in Travis's life is, I think, the best and clearest example uh, anywhere in the books of where Travis's devotion to the rule book costs him, and in which he is demonstrating, for want of a better term, a lack of maturity in understanding that sometimes the rules need to be set aside. Okay? That there are... It's kind of like when you tell somebody if they want to write, first you have to learn how the grammar rules and stuff work, and then you can break them when you need to. One of the hallmarks of maturity in a lot of ways, is recognizing when the 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 the, uh, uh, the the situation requires you to act in a way contrary to your first your first response to it. I'm, I'm not putting this well because I'm kind of shooting around the target I'm trying to hit. But a more mature Travis would have said, you know what, yes, this is the strict letter of the rules and everything else, and screw it. This is my buddy Chomps, and this one time, okay, I'm going to do the human thing rather than the rule thing. And he's just not capable of doing it at that point in life. I think he was also give him another 30 years and he'll get the hang of it. <laughs> He was also put in a very difficult situation in that case. I mean, he did, he has done that, even for Chomps in the, in the first book, of course, with the cookie incident. Um, and, you know, this was a case where, you know, you could see him making either call, and he, he made what he thought was the best call, and it cost him a friend, um, at least that's what he thought. And um, 
But it was a difficult, you know, that would be a difficult choice for him. Yeah. But he, um, he even in the book, he grows a little bit from that because he realizes that he might do the same damn thing to Lisa and, and drive her away, his, his one and only girlfriend he's had. But also, yeah, well, again, it, it's not just a rule, the potential safety of the ship, mm-hmm. his view yeah. was an, it, it, at stake. And so, yes, Chomps was a friend, but it's a rule, and it's a rule I understand the reason for. Mm-hmm. Makes yeah, that it's, harder. it's kind of what I was saying earlier about his his basic understanding that rules really do exist for a reason. That right. Someone didn't just wake up one day and said, say, I know I'm going to write a rule book and make everybody do what it says. Uh, one thing that I think needs to be borne in mind, and this is something that has always been true of wet navies, and it's definitely going to be true of the Space Navy, procedures really do need to be followed because they've been worked out in a way that is going to keep you from falling overboard, keep the ship from sinking, keep you from being blown out of the airlock. Now, there are different levels of, of procedures. But that mindset that, you know, always double-check the seal on the hatch, always, you know, always acknowledge and order the same way so there's no misunderstanding about whether or not you understood the order in the first place. That really is part and parcel of, of the, the, the naval mindset. And Travis just has it in sort of a hyper-developed fashion. But he's also seen instances where not following the rules did lead to potential disaster. So it's yes. not just – he's seen the result of not following the regulations. Mm-hmm. No, and, and actually, actually, Tim, that's the point that I was trying to make, um, is that he knows that if you break the rules sometimes, um, people die who wouldn't yeah. have to otherwise. Um, and, and, um, you know, I mean, he's got, he's got a point. I mean, even in his discussion with, with Osterman, when she's trying to get him, you know, to kind of back off a little bit, you know, he's saying, basically what he's saying is you cannot compromise with the integrity of the ship. Yeah. I think that Travis and Otter are both very likable characters, but they're likable for different reasons. They both are vulnerable, um, and they're vulnerable in part because of this uh, sense of duty that they have. Travis's costs him more in his personal day-to-day life. But if you look at Honor, for example, when she gets sent to Basilisk Station, and she basically says, no, this is what my orders are, and I'm going to carry them out. That's precisely what Travis is doing when he's insisting on following the book. Um, and he is, I think that part of the problem is that except for those who know him very, very well, he does not project that sense of, uh, of, of personality and of, you know, this is the person I'm going to follow through hell and high water that honor does but for those who have been through hell with him he does you see what i'm saying yeah 
those who know um, him well understand yeah. and appreciate him, but nobody else does. Yeah, I, I, I would say that is that is absolutely fair, and and there are elements of that in Honor's career, especially in the early period and so forth. But Travis, for Travis, it's it's a much sharper divide between those who know him and those who don't in terms of how they think about him and how they visualize him. And I think more people who know Travis, at least in passing, are, are going to think of him as the rules-following automaton rather than the, the, the person that he really is than would be the case with Honor. Um, I like Travis. I like him a lot. Um, and I think that he is, um, in an odd sort of way, he's a more vulnerable character than Honor. I mean, Honor has her vulnerabilities, which people persistently ignore. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but with Travis, it's, he has a little bit more of the, uh, Horatio Hornblower, um, lack of self-confidence that Honor definitely does not have. Um, even when he's following his rules, even when he knows he's right, he is still questioning whether he's doing the right thing, whether people are going to understand what he's doing, etc. Um, and I think that's one of the things I really like about him. Also, Honor much more quickly has built up a cadre of people who will defend her. Travis doesn't have yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we meet Travis much earlier in his life, um, you know, both emotionally and fit and sort of, you know, chronologically. And I think we yeah. get to know the vulnerable. We get to know Travis before he's figured these things out, whereas Honor came onto the scene pretty much having it all figured out. And then, you know, David, you later wrote books sort of tracing that back a little bit. Um, yeah. But with Travis, we're really seeing, we're seeing the not terribly likable initial Travis. We're seeing him learn how things work, and we're seeing him sort of grow up as the story progresses. Well, and Honor also, yeah, from from that perspective, uh, Honor as a character had the advantage of being pitched straight into uh, the pressure cooker with the wiper, everybody knowing, everybody with the brain knowing that the Star Kingdom is heading into a wiper-death struggle, which is not the case for Travis. Travis has the kind of personality that if he were alive in Honor's time, he would be right up there with maybe not Avar's Tarakov, but maybe one step down from him because of sheer ability, determination, etc. But he is in a peacetime Navy, and peacetime officers and wartime officers are like cats and fish in terms of how much they have. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, seriously, you know, one of the things that happens anytime a war buildup situation comes along is you find out how many of the officers who have been pretty much exactly what you needed in peacetime are not what you need in wartime. And officers who in peacetime look like square pegs in round holes, you suddenly discover are who you need when it all hits the fan. And Travis is one of those, and he's unfortunately, up until the, this book, okay, um, he hasn't had it hitting the fan to give him an opportunity to show that he is what you need 
when the chips are down. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why those who do know him are going to are, are coming to value him so highly. And it's and we as readers feel like we're in on this this sort of secret treasure as well because we get to know him in that way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And even, the, even even when he's at his least likable, the reader because we can get behind his eyes because we know his background, we can see what's going on, we understand why he's doing what he's doing, and I think that's a key component here. Um, that, that we understand it, where some of the characters of the book, looking at from the outside, don't like his half brother, like his his fellows in the service who just see him following the rules without being able to get inside his head and understand why he why he understands that's important, even if they don't. Well, the uh, the Murdy has really hit the fan in in a called arms, hasn't it? <laughs> Well, one other thing in the book that um, there is a, the cover is no lie. There is a hell of a spaceship battle here, um, which I, we don't really want to get into the, the nitty gritty of, but maybe Tom can explain it to us uh, what the tactical situation is and what, what, what's going on in, in this, uh, in this point in history and, and as far as space battles go. Well, so I think the, the main thing that we talked about this a little bit earlier, we, because of the way the, the balance of the weapons and the firepower of the weapons and the defenses of the ships, a lot of the tactics we see in the later honorverse really don't, um, they wouldn't work here. Um, when you have ships that can't even fire out through their sidewalls because they haven't invented the gun port yet, they have to fire straight. So they have to actually cross their own T, as it were, or at least as you describe it in honors time. Um, to even fire and to control their missiles. Um, and when you have missiles that could destroy a ship in a single hit, um, and when you have a defensive environment such that ships have a very difficult time covering for each other, um, you know, you don't have the kind of area defense you have with the um, modern counter missiles where you can, can cover an entire formation. You basically have to stick yourself almost directly in front of the ship you're going to be covering. Um you have an environment where it lends itself to smaller groups. It lends itself to more independent maneuvers. Um, a lot, you know, the formalism of the wall of battle just can't exist in this time. Yeah. So well, the battle becomes much more difficult to track. It becomes much more interesting when you have multiple groups of ships cutting across each other and, and maneuvering against each other, as opposed to a single, a single mass or, you know, a couple of masses that are moving into the, the final climactic sequence. It, it's almost, it's almost a little bit like, um, a great big aerial dogfight. Yeah. I was just about to mention that. Yeah. You have to be faced towards your target. It also has some parallels with, um, the uh, period of sailing warfare uh, prior to the emergence of the line of battle as a formal, formal tactical formation, when battles were melees in which uh, two or three ships from each side would wind up fighting their own little local knot of battle, rather than the admiral attempting to keep the entire fleet under command, concentrate his power, and so forth. More like the battles of the... Um, 
oh maybe the the uh, the, du- the Anglo-Dutch wars uh, back in the time of uh, um, uh, the Commonwealth of, of England uh, with with um, Cromwell. Um, it's um, it's a it's a completely different mindset in a lot of ways. Uh, the biggest difference between this and any period of, of sailing warfare is the, the, there are two factors. It's the range of the weapons and it's the effect of the weapons. Um, the ships can simply shoot each other from farther away. And in the days of sailing warfare, it might take hours of pounding to put a, uh, uh, a ship of the line out of action. You might have to kill two-thirds of the crew, et cetera, to do it. Here, one bad hit, and it's all over. Um, so the, the analogy between sailing ships and the ships of Honor Harrington's time, especially at this point, prior to Honor Harrington's time, could be really, really, really overstressed really, really quickly, um, which is why I think the dogfight works, except for the fact that the relative speed of the ships, the units, is so much lower than for fighter planes going after each other in, in one big furball. Well, it makes some, for some very dramatic moments uh, because it is, a, you know, the the it's up to the captain of that ship to, uh, to, to save the day or, or not. Um, and you can also lose very quickly. Yes, absolutely. Does it pose any challenges in writing these scenes? Uh, once you've got the battle choreographed, it's simply mostly a matter of uh, just writing it down. Choreographing the battle, though, can be trickier. Um, I have frequently, in writing battles for, for honors time, I'll start with uh, where I want the critical moment in the battle to come, and then I back my way out one step at a time to the starting position. Um, I think that Tom and Tim have, in some ways, a tougher task in some ways an easier task, but in many ways a tougher task when they're working on the engagements here because of the fact that the admirals have so much less control over the individual task groups and, and ships. Uh, or perhaps it would be fair to say, fairer to say that it's not so much that they have less control as that there's less they can do with the control they have. Because they have to, it has to devolve onto the onto the individual ship captains and so forth. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, that lends itself more to an ensemble cast, which is what we we are tending to run with here. It's not just Travis, but we've also got Chomps and Lisa and uh, other people that are that are involved in making uh, making history here. Mm. <clears throat> well, it's fair to say that uh, the game is truly afoot in occult arms. Um, what uh, some very important things that will affect the course of Manticore and history are going to take place very soon, 
perhaps in book three, it seems like. Um, are you working on that? Can you can you tell us anything about it without spoiling it? Well, we can uh, tell you, but I'm, about, I'm, you. I'm about 95,000 words <laughs> into it. Okay. <laughs> uh, we, we'll give you the title, and you can go from there. It's, it's going to be A Call to Vengeance. Aha. Uh-huh. Sounds like there's going to be uh, uh, some setbacks and yet a, a coming back from that. Am I guessing right? <laughs> See in about a year. Yeah. <laughs> See in about a year. <laughs> and I really want to. It's a it's a wonderful uh, it's a one like you say it's a wonderful ensemble cast. You have a compelling hero who's not honor, um, but it, it's still uh, wonderful stuff in that world. It feels real. Um, feels like I am in a space navy when I'm reading this book. Uh, the book is A Call to Arms by David Weber and Timothy Zahn with Thomas Pope. It's now at booksellers everywhere. Uh, David, Timothy, and Tom, thank you very much for being with us today. Bye-bye, guys. It was fun. Okay. Yeah. Take care. Bye for everybody. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel, of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 12 Looks like you're going to make it, Dr. Curry said, examining Faith's chart. Don't sound so enthusiastic. Faith said. She was sipping ice water and balefully considering what Dr. Simmons had prescribed for her first meal in two days, jello and chicken broth. As far as I've been able to figure out, the only good thing about New York is supposedly the food. This is not what I've been promised. You need to let your body get used to food again, Simmons told her. The emesis was a surprising response, Dr. Curry said. And as the resident mad scientist... While I personally didn't want you to go fully into abnormal neural condition, the opportunity to study it would have been useful. I love you too, Doc. What is it about mad scientists you don't understand? Faith picked up a bowl of broth, took a sip, and set it down. God, I'm weak, she said, her hands shaking. That's just weakness, right? Should just be low blood sugar, Dr. Simmons said. You've still got a high antibody count, but your fever seems to have broken and your white blood cell count is dropping. As Dr. Curry said, it looks like you're going to make it. And we've now got really good data on the process of the disease, Curry burbled happily. Bully for you, Faith said. I know, I'm tired. I'm channeling da. Anything we can do for you? Dr. Simmons asked. As soon as I'm better enough, somebody owes me one good meal in this stupid, stinking town, Faith said, sipping the broth again. 
That's all I hear is how great the food in New York is. And so far, all I've had is takeout Chinese and soup. One good meal, Dr. Curry said. I'll make sure that goes on the agenda. Well, this has been too much fun, Tom said. Stacy? She made it, Tom. Stacy looked nearly as washed out as Faith. And I guess the good news is that the vaccine works. And she's about as resistant as anyone could be, Tom said. I've always known she was tough. She's saying she wants one decent meal in New York. How do you feel about that? Going out for dinner in zombie-infested New York? Stacy said, grimacing. Have a hard time saying no, but it's not something I'm real thrilled about. She'll need a day or so to rest up. Agreed, Tom said. Steve should join us. I'll scrounge up some security I can trust to put on your boat. I'll send Kaplan and a backup. He's scheduled for the primary extract, anyway. And I'll find a restaurant that's still open. Most of the really good ones are closed. I'll find one. Oh, I traded some favors. Your certification as licensed contractors has been cleared. So you can carry, heavy, in New York City. Does that include Sophia and Faith? Stacy asked. I've got an ID printer, Tom said dryly, and some very flexible software. At this point, I doubt anyone will check. Do you have anyone who could take you to the hospital, ma'am? Paterno asked, as Young draped a sheet over the woman's husband's body. The man had been in his seventies, and yet had thrown off two taser hits. Some of them did that. Some of them dropped, and some of them just kept coming. The new ROE was clear. If a 1064 hotel didn't stop with the tasers, deadly force was authorized. The department, with concurrence of the state and local authorities, had had to do it. Not only was it already the de facto rule of engagement, based upon how many shootings had been officer-involved over the last two weeks, they'd lost too many officers to the plague. And more than half of those had gone zombie themselves. The squad room meeting was starting to look like the team room meeting. If many more of them went down, it would be no meeting at all. The wife had a bite on her arm and another on her shoulder. They'd hit both with antiseptic for all the good it would do. They were probably looking at another zombie in a few hours. A friend is on the way over, the woman said shakily. We'll stay here until they get here, Paterno said. The coroner's office team will need to have access to your home. Can I get a verbal confirmation on that? Is it okay if the coroner's team handles the management on your husband's remains? Yes, the woman said, shaking her head. Yes, I suppose they have to. Why did you have to shoot him? She said angrily. He was just sick. He... The woman suddenly lunged at Paterno, howling. Joe instinctively threw up his hand to fend her off. Unfortunately, he'd taken off his tactical gloves after dealing with her husband. The woman's teeth sank into the web of muscle and skin between his thumb and forefinger, ripping out a chunk. She lunged at him again, chewing. At the first howl, Young had ripped out his taser, and as Paterno rolled backwards off the sofa, the taser round hit the woman in the side. She fell onto the floral print, blood-splattered sofa, spasming. Shit, 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 Paterno said, as Young slapped a tranquilizer into the woman's thigh muscles. 
The zombie started to stand up, and he tapped her, hard on the back of the head with his baton. She might be dead or not. He wasn't really caring at the moment. How bad? Young asked. Bad? Paterno had his hand clamped on the wound, but it was still streaming blood. Let it bleed, Young said. Maybe it will get some of it out. Shit, she turned fast, Paterno said. Really fast, Young replied. He opened the med kit back up, and as Paterno held out his hand, started pouring betadine over the wound, and then roughly bandaging it. He pulled out an antibody kit from the medical bag and did a quick blood test on the tranquilized subject. What's it read? Paterno asked, cradling his arm. They both knew she'd zombied, but it was still possible she just had a really bad freakout. Positive, Young said unhappily. Call for backup, Paterno said. Then back to the station. Sentara Hospital is overloaded, and there's not much they can do for me that one of the paramedics can't. Hell, there's not much they can do, period. Unit 464, Young said into his microphone. 164 Hotel, Kilo India Alpha. 164 Hotel Tango. One officer possibly infected. Bite. 1019 for medical. Good news, Joe said, holding up his hand. You get to do the paperwork. I don't want to go to the warehouse, Joe said as they were driving back to the station. He had his hand elevated and was staring at it. The warehouse makes Dachau look like Disneyland, Young said. Billy's not going to be able to handle that, Joe said. You know that, right? Yeah, Young said. There was a zombie running down the street, ten-year-old or so boy. A clothed woman was running after him. She was already bitten. Just another zombie in the making. We should have started at shoot to kill, Joe said, watching the scene unfold. The woman was waving at the cop car as it passed, trying to get help. She'd be pissed off. Maybe she'd complain. Maybe somebody would hear it. Then she'd turn, and the complaint would be sort of moot. You've got a spare, right? Young asked. The department required that you turn in your issue firearm as you were going off duty. Since it was legal to carry for officers off duty, most had at least one spare. Yeah, Joe said. I'd say stop so I could shoot both of them, but then they'd lock me up, and then I'd go to the warehouse, and either starve to death or get eaten when it all goes down. Or worse, get free and be one of them. I don't want to be one of them. I'll come by after I get off shift, Young said. Can Billy secure you? Heh, <laughs> Paterno said, starting to laugh. It turned into a full bore belly laugh. He finally stopped, wiping his eyes. Yeah, he can. What's so funny? Young asked. You've never had a problem with my lifestyle, Paterno said, looking at him. Any reason for that? I don't give a shit what a cop does with his or her genitals as long as they're a good cop, Young answered. And you're a good cop. Oh, I've had my times being a bad cop, Joe said, musingly but I've always appreciated that you weren't a flake about it, so I've never really tried to screw with you. Don't screw with me, I won't screw back. So just, when you come by, just don't get freaked out that Billy is able to secure me really, really well. 
Oh, Young said, grimacing. Okay, yeah. I'd say TMI, but it's useful if, yeah, disturbing information. Hey, Paterno said. Guys gotta have a hobby. Hi, Bill, Young said. He didn't want to be at Joe's house. He didn't want to go through with this, but duty was like that. How's he doing? He asked as he stepped through the door. Not well, Bill Jacobus said. The electrical engineer was tall and slender, in contrast to his partner. Young had never seen him wear anything but a golf shirt and fine slacks, and that, at least, had not changed. The odd part was that his pant legs were covered in dirt. Then Young realized why. Bill started to stick out his hand, then remembered and ended up wringing them together. His fever is very high. I've given him Motrin and water. He's... He shrugged. Thank you for coming. You're a... Good friend. You know why I'm here? Young said. If you do, maybe you want to go out for a walk or something? At night with zombies roaming? Bill said, with a breathless chuckle. He gestured up the stairs. My first husband died of AIDS. I was always careful, even with Thomas, so I never contracted it. The one mercy of this plague is that it's decently quick. I, since we are in this situation, I will tell you that I gave the same grace to Thomas. But here, I don't have the contacts, the materials. It only takes one thing, Young said, walking to the stairs. I could turn up a morphine drip, Bill admitted. Add some chemicals. I could not have pulled the trigger. That is why you were a good friend. Would you mind if I... No, I should stay, to say goodbye. Joe was in the master bedroom, spread-eagled on the bed. There was a band across the top of the bed that restrained both his wrists and his head via a collar, and his legs were spread and chained. He was dressed in black tacticals and wearing an SFPD badge. You guys are serious about your restraints, aren't you? Young said. I said a guy needs a hobby, Paterno said. He was visibly sweating and racked with chills. How you doing, honey? Bill asked, sitting on the side of the bed and wiping his forehead. He leaned over and kissed him where he'd wiped. Guys, I'm real supportive of your relationship, Young said neutrally. But I'm still the kid who was raised Southern Baptist at some level, so I'm just gonna go outside. You two chat. When you're ready, Bill, I'll be right in the hallway. Sorry. Nah, it's okay, Joe growled. I get it. I mean, I don't get it, but I get it. After about 15 minutes, Bill came out wiping his eyes. Just don't, Bill said, his face working. I won't until I'm sure, Young said. This was getting to be more and more of a pain. I'll be in the backyard, Bill said. Young walked back into the room and pulled up a chair. Before I get comfy, he said. Peace? Side drawer, Joe said, gesturing with his chin. Young quickly found the Glock 40. He pulled the slide back far enough to see there was a round in the chamber, then slipped it into his waistband. Could I get a drink? Joe asked. Sure, partner, Young said. 
There was a bottle of water with a straw in it by the bed. He reached into his cargo pocket and pulled out a pair of thick leather gloves. Sorry, that old biddy turned so fast it has me nervous. She did turn fast, Joe said, taking a sip. How the hell do you do that? Young said. I can't drink from the prone for nothing. Years of training, Joe said. You really don't want to know. Thanks. You need some Motrin? Young asked. I've had enough to kill an elephant, Joe said. It's not touching this fever. Or chills. Or aches. I mostly just want to lie here, no offense. None taken, Young said. But there is, Joe said, then stopped. I've got a favor to ask. I thought that was why I was here, Young said. Okay, another favor, Joe said, frowning. It's about Bill. He's not going to deal with this real well. Joe, Young said. I'm willing to accept that there are some people who are just, you know, totally gay and there's no going back. You realize that there are some people who are just totally straight, and you know I'm one of them, right? That's not what I meant, Joe said wearily. He's got no skills for surviving this shit. Are you saying you want me to help your wife survive the zombie apocalypse? Young said. Because it would help a lot if it was, you know, an actual wife, like female. I know what I'm asking, Joe said. Young thought about it for a second and shrugged. I'll do what I can, Young said. But that's all I'm promising. Okay, Joe said. Way things are going, not sure what you could do anyway. You going in tomorrow? Not hardly, Young said. I'm done. There's no way to survive this as a cop. We're not getting vaccine, we're not getting support, and we're not doing a damn thing to stop it. We should have quit a week ago, Joe said, shrugging as well as he could. I was sort of waiting for you to ring the bell. Ring the bell? Young asked. Seal thing, Paterno said. When you quit buds, you ring a bell. Ah, Young said. I didn't know you were a seal. Wasn't, Paterno said. Guy on the team in Frisco was. Just picked up the term. I was waiting for you to ring the bell, Young said. Bad call on both our parts. Yeah. Yeah. Young sat in silence after that, occasionally giving Joe water for about an hour. Then Joe started to struggle against the straps. Spiders! Joe snarled. Get the spiders off. No, 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 no. Young waited until he was sure, then put on a pair of nitrile gloves, pulled the Glock from his waistband, and put it under the chin of his struggling partner. He pulled back carefully. You could blow a shot, even at this distance, and felt the hammer give. The top of Paterno's skull was taken off, blasting over the seafoam green sheets. Young unstrapped Joe's right hand, then wrapped it around the butt of the Glock. Last, he laid both on the upper chest. It wouldn't survive a detailed forensic examination, but there wasn't going to be one. The last forensics tech in the department had gone zombie three days ago. He walked out and shut the door, walked downstairs, and exited the house. From here on out, it was every man for himself. 
That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Koki Daniel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Anna Witch's Brew of Tooth of Newt, Sword of Peter, you know, the one Jesus said to stop chopping ears off with, and the subtle characterization of villains along with an armful of raised mugs of thanks and gratitude for David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope, co-author of A Call to Arms. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.